Hello and welcome to another podcast about the UCD 43. This will be number 20, Fever. And we're going to be specifically addressing fever in children today with Dr. Alexis Tony. But before we begin, I just want to give you the goals and objectives for this podcast. Number one, to understand key historical information needed from any child and or accompanying parent presenting with fever. Two, to be able to generate a differential diagnosis for the most common causes of fever in kids, as well as a list of can't-miss diagnoses in patients presenting with fever. Three, to be familiar with components of the physical examination that are potentially helpful in narrowing the differential diagnosis for fever. And finally, number four, to know the basic laboratory and radiographic tests that may further elucidate the etiologies of fever. And if you are looking for a good resource for this topic, I'd recommend Nelson's Pediatric Symptom-Based Diagnosis. This is an excellent textbook for anything and all pediatrics in terms of symptoms, and I learned a lot checking out this reference. Today I'm here with Dr. Alexis Tony, one of our two pediatrics clerkship directors at UC Davis School of Medicine, and we're going to be exploring UC Davis 43 symptom number 20, which is fever. Because this is a fascinating but rather huge area to cover, I've decided to break the fever up into two podcasts, one fever in children and one uh, that will come out in a couple of weeks, a fever in adults. Today we'll be covering fever in children with Alexis, but first, Alexis, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us where you grew up, went to college, med school, and trained in residency, as well as what your roles are here at UC Davis at this time? Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Um, so as you said, I'm Alexis Tony. I grew up in Northern California, actually, in Vallejo, um, which is not too far from here. I went to college at UC San Diego, and I um, uh, majored in human biology as well as human development. I went to med school at UCSF, and then I went on to pediatrics residency at Stanford, Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. And then immediately after residency came here to UC Davis. My roles at UC Davis, I'm a pediatric hospitalist clinically, um, and then my academic roles, I am the co-clerkship director for the PEDS clerkship in the third year, and then I'm also the pediatrics discipline leader for the new iExplore curriculum. Excellent. And with Eric, who was on one of our guests. Yes, for, the co-clerkship director for, with Eric, who talked about your, your pain. pain. <laughs> your pain with Eric. Um, and can you tell me what your favorite things to do outside of medicine and medical student education? Yeah, absolutely. So I have two little boys, a five-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old, and so that's really where we spend most of our free time these days is doing activities with them. My five-year-old just started kindergarten, so he's learning to read and write, and that's been fun. Um, we are learning to ride bikes. And then um, I really enjoy gardening. My kids actually like to do it with me, but I have to admit that it's been so hot that I haven't <laughs> done much. I'm hoping to get back into it now that the, the temperature is cooling down. Excellent. Uh, vegetables, flowers, or both? Flowers, bushes. I, we did, my son and I did start like a little herb garden and then a little kind of wildflower garden off to the side of our yard, but mostly it's... Uh, nice. Yeah. Flowers. I highly recommend rosemary. It. <laughs> we have, we do have a huge rosemary bush, which has been yeah, great. They don't take much water and it's great for cooking. Yeah. 
suppose that before we get started talking about fever, I should ask how common a chief complaint fever is in kids as a presenting complaint. I know it's common as a symptom since we had an infinite wisdom to put it on the UC Davis 43 <laughs> list, but how common is it really as a chief complaint in kids? It is super common as a chief complaint in kids, and actually about two-thirds of kids will visit a physician or other healthcare provider with the chief complaint of fever before the age of two. Excellent. Well, I'm glad it's on our list, and I'm glad we're giving it its due attention today in kids. Um, what I generally love about the symptom of fever, uh, especially in adults, is that a patient either has it or they don't have it. Um, and then we, if they've had it, we have to put on our Sherlock Holmes hats and try and figure out why a patient has the fever. But is there a definition of what fever is in kids? There is, although it, it's actually slightly complicated. So um, more, most sources will define fever in kids less than three years of age as a rectal temperature of 38 degrees Celsius, which is 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. But there's a couple nuances to this that we have to keep in mind. One is that uh, parents are often the people reporting fevers to us, and they will often report what we call tactile fevers, which is where they rely on touch to determine whether their child has a fever. This has been studied, um, and what we know about that is that parents are actually really good at determining when their child does not have a fever, uh, but they're not quite as accurate at determining when their kid does have a fever, so that really needs to be confirmed. That said, if a parent is coming to you reporting tactile fevers, we still take it seriously, of course. And then it gets even trickier because there are so many different ways parents might take the temperature if they do take it, and it's important for us to know that. Why is how it's taken so important? Yeah, well, you know, as I said, the rectal temp is sort of the standard, but most parents aren't going to come to you reporting that they've taken a rectal temperature on their child, except maybe the youngest infants. And then even in older children and adults, we, we think about oral temperatures as being kind of the next thing that most people do. But until about the age of four or five, most kids really can't coordinate doing an oral temp. They can't keep the thermometer underneath their tongue. So there's all kinds of other um, methods that parents may use. There's axillary, tympanic, there's the temporal artery thermometers that people use commonly now, and then there's even pacifier thermometers. And we really have to know how to interpret the data based off of what we're being told. For example, the axillary temp tends to be about 0.5 to 0.8 degrees Celsius lower than rectal. Uh, those tympanic thermometers and the pacifier thermometers are just not accurate <laughs> at all. And then um, the tympanic, or excuse me, the temporal artery thermometers actually coordinate uh, quite well with the rectal thermometers to determine if a person has a fever or does not, but are a little less accurate about determining the height of the fever. Oh, interesting. I have never heard of a pacifier thermometer. Are these commonly used or is it just a, a new thing? Not super common. It's <laughs> fairly new, but I have had more parents, maybe even in the last year, um, <laughs> reporting in the smaller infants that they're using them. They're certainly being marketed. Huh. Interesting. But the literature doesn't support I don't know it, uh, that there's a whole lot of literature, but what I have read does not support it. Okay. Well, so it sounds like for the purposes of this podcast, uh, in the sake of simplicity, we'll say that a fever in kids is greater than 38 degrees centigrade, but figuring uh, out how the temperature is taken in use of antipyretics and such is a key part of the history. 
Um, I think the science behind fever could be two or three podcasts in length, so space doesn't really allow for us to get into that. How does that sound to you? That sounds great. Okay. So I understand there's a grouping of fever in the pediatric population. Yes, there is. We think of fever in four groups. The first is fever in the neonate, which we kind of put into its own subcategory. Um, Then we have fever with localizing signs. Fever without a source, which is defined as uh, fever for fewer than seven days without a source. Fever of unknown origin, which is fever for a week or more without a clear localizing source. Okay. And to call it fever of unknown origin, is that like post, once the workup is done and you still don't know? Correct. So, so you've, you've tried to determine based off at least your initial history, physical, and probably labs, and you still don't have mm-hmm. a clear source for the fever. So, so it'd be like fever without a source, but longer than a week exactly. falls into the fever unknown. Great. Boy, that's a nice lean grouping uh, for the population <laughs> of pediatrics. So we're not going to dive deep into the fever in neonate category but um, from what I gather, that is a group, too, that could use its own podcast. We don't really have time to talk much about that. But in brief, what makes this such a unique subpopulation within pediatrics when it comes to fever? Yeah, you're right that fever in the neonate really could be its own podcast uh, in and of itself. So in kids, the risk of invasive bacterial infections, and by that I mean bacteremia, pyelonephritis, meningitis, and pneumonia, tends to be highest in kids who are less than three months of age as compared with older kids. And this is for many different reasons. Some of those are that, by definition, kids in that group are going to be unimmunized or underimmunized. Unimmunized if they're less than six to eight weeks, underimmunized even if they're three months old. Uh, Recent exposure, they've recently been born, and by virtue of being born, they've potentially had exposure to um, several bacterial pathogens that can be problematic. Uh, And then also the younger infants have a really underdeveloped blood-brain barrier, which puts them at higher risk than the rest of us for meningitis. So we really do tend to be hypervigilant in this population of patients, Uh, those less than three months of age, and then even more those less than, like in the first month, those less than 28 days of life. One interesting thing to remember though is viruses are still far and away the most common cause of fever in this age group, similar Mm -hmm. to older kids, which I know we'll talk about a bit more. But uh, we do know, like I said, they're at higher risk for bacterial infection and it can be difficult based off of your history and your physical exam alone to distinguish between those two in these young infants. The objective signs and symptoms are a little bit harder to tease out. So historically, most kids under the age of three months would get a full workup, meaning labs, urine, and CSF, and then they would get empiric antibiotics. Uh, The nice thing is there's a lot of ongoing research now, and we've gotten better at risk stratifying these kids. Mm -hmm. So now we really stratify them based off of their appearance and their labs and determine who we need to be more aggressive in. But I would say that still most kids under three to four weeks of age will get some workup, blood and urine at a minimum, um, and then some other subset of them will end up getting a lumbar puncture and empiric antibiotics. And then as kids get older, we're just less empirically aggressive. Hmm. Well, perhaps we can do a future podcast on neonates because it's it's a fascinating topic. It really is, and somewhat ever-changing because the research is ongoing, which is great. I actually took care of a two-month-old when I was on my pediatrics clerkship in medicine that I remember really well who had a septic knee from yeah. group B strap, yes. which was 
pretty interesting. Groupie strep is a really difficult organism. It can uh, cause a lot of wreak a lot of havoc early mm-hmm. on, um, and you know we'll talk in a little bit. But kids are at high risk for septic joints, so it's interesting that you saw that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw a lot of my peds clerkship mm-hmm. for sure. Um, so, okay, so we're going to uh, not get into too much in the, uh, on the neonates, but um, so we're in this sort of common things or common mode for the UCD 43. One, mm-hmm. our students and residents thinking about the most common things and then seeing if they, f- you know, their patients are fitting those particular patterns. And if they're not, we want them thinking about less common things. But what is the most common cause of fever in kids? absolutely far and away it's viruses Um, and then after that there's a really long list of things that can come and that's where your history and your physical exam possibly labs and radiologic studies will really help to guide you got it yeah I think this is um there's I looked at some of these lists in the pediatric textbooks and they are (laughs) massive uh, lists I'd refer our listeners to Nelson's pediatric symptom-based diagnosis which I, I find is like a really good book and then I know there's other online sources like Up to Date and anything else you'd recommend. But um, as we're uh, thinking about, what's your sort of thumbnail differential diagnosis of fever in kids? Um, because I'm sure it's important to remember that most fever in kids is some sort of infection, but infection is not the only cause of fever in kids. That's definitely true. Just like in adults, uh, fever has a really broad differential and it's up to the clinician to work through that. As you said, infection is most common, first viral, then bacterial, and then other types of infection, and really does tend to be at the top of our differential most of the time. Uh, Within infectious, it's important to remember for pediatrics a couple things. Kids are more prone to deep musculoskeletal infections, um, such as osteomyelitis and septic joint. So we're often thinking about those things earlier in our differential than you may in a healthy adult. Um, Additionally, we should always be thinking about pyelonephritis in diapered kids, especially those under the age of two, um, because fever is usually their presenting sign. Uh, They can't tell us about the symptoms of cystitis. They can't tell us they have urgency or dysuria or frequency. So we often don't know there's a problem until uh, it's progressed and they present with fever. Additionally, after infection, there's a lot of infectious causes, or excuse me, non-infectious causes that should be considered, especially if there are clues in the history or in your physical that are leading you in that direction, like more prolonged fever, cyclic or recurrent fevers, recent drugs or immunizations in your history, or any accompanying signs or symptoms that might point you toward a different diagnosis. In the first year of life, vaccine-related fevers are quite common. Kids are getting a lot of vaccines, and so uh, making sure that you consider where they are relative to their last vaccine if they're presenting with a fever is important. I also consider inflammatory conditions, especially Kawasaki disease, um, if the fever has lasted a bit longer. So for Kawasaki disease, five days or longer, I'm at least considering that diagnosis. Hmm. And then now in the age of COVID, I'm similarly considering MISC, which is multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. And that's kind of a post-infectious, uh, post-COVID infectious inflammatory syndrome that children can present with and be quite sick. IBD and other rheumatologic conditions such as systemic JIA or juvenile idiopathic arthritis are definitely on the list for fevers that are a little more long-standing. And then if your fever, if your fever history fits, um, considering drug fever is important. 
Malignancy is fortunately a less common cause, but one that we should always at least be considering. And then interestingly, a lot of parents, caregivers, even some physicians believe that teething causes fever in children, uh, but that's really not borne out in the literature. Tooth eruption can cause um, an increased temperature, but if the kid's having true fevers, you need to be thinking about other sources. Hmm. You're bursting my bubble here because <laughs> how many times our kids were cutting teeth when they were young and we thought that they had fevers related to teething and my wife's a pediatrician. So. <laughs> but I guess things change over the years. Uh, so uh, one of the other things we like to cover in these podcasts about symptoms are uh, can't miss diagnoses, the diagnoses that could cause severe harm to our patients if we fail to diagnose them, or sometimes even if we do. What are some of these that you're thinking about when you're seeing a kid with fever? There are quite a few, and hopefully there will be hints when you're assessing your patient. But to name a few that come to mind, I would say bacterial meningitis, bacteremia and sepsis, septic joint, as I mentioned, complications related to some of the more common infections that kids can get, specifically ENT infections, so mastoiditis related to an acute otitis media, or deep neck space infections like retropharyngeal abscess related to pharyngitis. I would put Kawasaki disease on this list mostly because it really needs to be diagnosed and treated quickly in order to prevent the development of coronary artery aneurysms, and then certainly you wouldn't want to miss malignancy. Okay. And what is the treatment for Kawasaki disease? Not to digress. Yeah, but absolutely. We treat it with IVIG, and most of the time um, that will treat and prevent um, coronary, treat the Kawasaki disease and prevent the development of coronary artery aneurysms. If it doesn't, if they continue to have fevers past that, then the treatment can get a lot more complicated, um, and we're using immune modulators in that in that instance. But usually IVIG does the trick. Okay. And what... what uh, just to digress for a second with Kawasaki's, are there any like pearls you can throw out about key uh, clues that this child may have Kawasaki's? Absolutely. So as I mentioned, fever for five days or more as a core um, kind of touch point, you need to have five days of fever or more before you can make the diagnosis of Kawasaki. Classic Kawasaki has some very obvious physical exam findings and the mnemonic we use is crash and burn. So crash would be conjunctivitis, rash, adenopathy, strawberry tongue, or oral mucosal changes. And then the H is hands and feet. So they usually have kind of swelling of their hands and feet. Hmm. Um, and then burn is the fever. However, I would say even more commonly than that, kids present with what we call atypical Kawasaki disease, which is where they have the prolonged fever. Maybe they have one or two of those symptoms, but they don't fit the complete classic Kawasaki mm -hmm. disorder disease um, criteria. There are supplemental lab criteria that we look at to determine if they're really inflamed um, that could support that diagnosis and cause us to still move forward with IVIG. Hmm. Fascinating. Because I, I hear pediatricians talk a lot about Kawasaki disease, but it would still fall into the zebra category, would you say, or not? I don't know. It, it, maybe I'm biased because I'm a hospitalist, so I see these kids. <laughs> I don't know that I would fully call it a zebra, but it is certainly far less common than infectious causes. Um, but I don't, I don't have the epidemiology for you off the top of my head, but I don't, I don't know that I would go so far as to call oh, it a okay. zebra. So maybe a yeah. zorse. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> or a hebra, <laughs> right. 
Um, great. So um, I'm going to try and present two brief cases to you today. But before I do that, I think what's helpful to our learners is for them to hear about how an experienced clinician is thinking as they're about to walk into the room or enter the ED uh, node or compartment where the patient is. Uh, as you're as you're going in, how do you mentally prepare for the encounter to see a kid with fever? Yeah, so like many things, I'm, I'm thinking about a lot of things at once. Uh, definitely I would be considering the child's age uh, since that may affect my differential and it also is likely to affect what sorts of historical data, pieces of data I can glean from the encounter. Importantly, I'll be thinking about whether when I walk into the room, the child appears sick or not sick, and that's a very quick determination that I want to make. It'll help me decide what's on my differential and also how quickly I need to move. Um, past that, there's just so much detail on the fever history that I want to know. So one is, is the child having true fevers? Because it's not uncommon for parents to bring their kid in um, with a report of fever. And then when you kind of dig into it, they've been 99.9 for a few days or something that we medically might not uh, call true fever. So important to kind of get get that history, how the fevers were, how the temperatures were taken, as we mentioned, and how long they've been going on. We talk a lot about fever curve in peds and trying to find patterns. For example, if a child is reported to have prolonged fever, but there was one day in there without fever, that could be indicative of two back-to-back -back illnesses, which is pretty common in young children. And then in, since infections are so common, I'd be wondering about sick contacts um, and other exposures. For example, daycare is a huge exposure for kids. Mm. Kids in daycare on average get 10 to 12 viral infections in a year, and that's Holy normal. Cow, that's <laughs> it does not feel normal as a parent. I can tell you that, that for sure, but it truly is normal. And so getting that history is important. And then of course, whether they're up to date on their immunizations. And then past that, it's really all about digging into the specifics for the patient in front of you, their symptoms, their personal history, and then finding out if they have any chronic conditions like sickle cell anemia or immunodeficiencies that might change your diagnosis and management. Excellent. Uh, this is bringing back great memories of my time <laughs> doing my peds clerkship, which was at Cleveland Metro General Hospital, which is this commonly ranked in the top 10 safety net hospitals in the United States, but it was my favorite clerkship, bar none. Wow, well then why are you not sitting across from me as a pediatrician right now? Interviewing myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why are you not talking about fevering kids? Uh, I didn't really like not being able to explain mm. to kids why we were poking them with needles. I had also worked as a, a phlebotomist in the original chickenpox study that was part of it was based in Cleveland at, at Metro. And it was just hard pinning yeah. them down and sticking needles in them. And that was even with kids that were a little older and you could explain. So I think that's, I think I was a little traumatized by that. Oh yeah, that that is certainly an understandable reason. Doesn't totally get easier um, in peds, that's for sure. Yeah, you probably get a little more used to it. You get a little more used to it, yes. All right, so you ready for case one? I am. All right, so this is a four and a half year old boy who develops fever at the time of the year is early December. Uh, he doesn't have any complaints upon getting up one morning, but his parents notice he looks a little flushed. He, he has a tactile <laughs> warmth <laughs> to his forehead. They think he has a fever, so they check it, and is he is able to coordinate the under-the-tongue thing. He's a smart kid. <laughs> and uh, his, his temperature is checked by his parents as 39.4 degrees centigrade. 
He seems a little low on energy, but he eats most of his breakfast, plays with his sister, who's three years older than him, and he loves uh, to hang out with. Uh, and he spends the rest of the day, because it's a weekend, uh, hanging out watching Disney movies, specifically The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. Uh, no one in the family is ill. The child goes to preschool five days a week, and several uh, kids have reportedly been ill over the past week. No one in the child's immediate family has been ill. His parents gave him acetaminophen in an attempt to lower his temperature. Uh, the family does not own any pets, though they did have a goldfish that sadly died about one year ago. <laughs> there hasn't been any travel outside of Northern California in the last 12 months, and he's up to date on all of his vaccinations since his mother is a pediatrician, <laughs> and he has not <clears throat> had any major childhood illnesses and does not take any medications other than the acetaminophen that they gave him, and he has no known allergies. Do you want his physical exam, or do you, did you want to... Sure, if you have a physical yeah, sure. exam, let's, let's um, So his physical exam is tempest, as, as I said, 39.4 degrees centigrade. His pulse is 112, respiratory rate 16 and unlabored. His blood pressure is 108 over 68. Uh, he's a pleasant, slightly flushed appearing boy, uh, appearing stated age, and he's definitely in no acute distress. There's no conjunctival injection. His neck is supple. There's no lymphadenopathy. There's no exudates in his uh, posterior oropharynx or, or erythema. Uh, his ears, uh, his mother, the pediatrician, inspects those, and they are pearly gray without injection or effusion. Uh, he's a little tachycardic, at least by adult standards, I guess. I don't know about pediatric standards. Um, and there's no murmurs appreciated. Uh, his lungs are clear to auscultation bilaterally as abdomen. Bowel sounds are present, soft, non-tender, no hepatosplenomegaly as extremities. There's no clubbing, cyanosis, or edema. Neurologically uh, non-focal without a Koenig's or Brudzinski sign. And on his skin exam, there is, this is notable for a diffuse, confluent, erythematous rash over the anterior and posterior trunk and upper arms and legs and lower anterior and posterior neck, something that uh, the child's sister <laughs> pointed out to her parents uh, earlier in the day, and there are no vesicles or papules. So what do you think is going on with this little boy. Yeah, that's a really helpful history and exam. Uh, one of the important things that I'm hearing, so I'm hearing that this child has only had fever for a day so far, and that apart from being a little low energy, he's pretty well appearing on exam with reassuring vitals. That heart rate is at the high end of normal for a four-year-old, and I wouldn't be too worried about it, especially in the context of being febrile. So when I think about sick or non not sick, I would call this child not sick. One thing to always consider is when kids have fevers, we really worry about dehydration because often when they're febrile, they don't want to eat and drink, but that doesn't seem to be the case for this child, so that's reassuring. So I would put this child's fever in the category of fever without a source, and the vast majority of these fevers are going to be due to viruses, as I mentioned. Additionally, interestingly, the rash is pretty reassuring to me right now uh, because many viruses can present with a viral exanthem. So although there's a very broad differential for fever and rash, in this well-appearing child who's only had fever for one day so far, I'm feeling like virus is most likely. 
You mentioned that it's early December, so there are several viruses that could be going on, and this child is in preschool where there are other sick kids, so certainly could have picked something up. Um, the viruses that are most likely at this time of year would be influenza, RSV, rhinovirus, human metanumovirus would be on that list, and then there are some that can really pop up at any time of year, such as adenovirus and, of course, COVID-19. Either way, in this kid's case at this point, as far as management, I would really focus on supportive care, hydration, rest, and then antipyretics if necessary to keep him comfortable and make sure he continues to hydrate himself. Okay. And in terms of like, because this is really, I guess, a case of not just fever, but fever plus rash, mm -hmm. which is a whole chapter in Nelson's <laughs> symptom-based <laughs> diagnosis book. But so if you're thinking about influenza, RSV, rhinovirus, and those, what, what viruses do you think of as causing the viral exanthem? I know COVID can do that because I've seen it. But. Yeah, I've actually seen a viral exanthem with m most respiratory viruses that kids present with. Oh, I've seen it. Yeah. Adenovirus is classic for a pretty diffuse, impressive rash, but I've seen it in kids with a common cold. That's usually kind of a less impressive rash, but still present. Um, I've certainly seen rash associated with influenza. So a lot of these viruses can have rash. RSV may be a little less common in my experience, but I would say really when we see rash in a child with fever early on, especially in respiratory season, it's very commonly associated with whatever virus they have. Hmm. Okay. Well, that was our son I just presented. <laughs> I had a suspicion with <laughs> yes. the pediatrician mom. Um, we did not take him to see his pediatrician, though we were tempted, because um, my wife always worried she was missing things, you know, how that is. You're not supposed to really treat your family as a physician. I um, absolutely experienced that. Uh, so we were pretty convinced it was a viral exanthem. He was better within 48 hours after that, and um, I actually have a photograph of the rash which I wasn't able to find for today's session, but I will find it and I will send it to you. But it's him pulling up his pajama top and there's just <laughs> this bright red exanthem over his, his belly and his chest. Pretty remarkable. But I'll find it and show it to you later. Okay. Yeah, that's um, really stressful as a parent, as you mentioned, even for a pediatrician parent. Uh, I've experienced that, that it can be stressful when your child has fever. So I think it was totally reasonable and exactly what I would have done not to bring him to care. But this is probably a good moment to point out why so many parents would have brought him to care at this point. Uh, we have a lot of parents bring their child into the doctor's office at the first sign of fever. And that's related to the concept that we think about in peds of fever phobia, which is really common. Parents and caregivers are very afraid of fever. Um, there's a fear that the heat itself, the fever itself, will cause damage and specifically brain damage to the child. And so um, parents do a lot of things to try to bring that fever down, including antipyretics, um, cool washcloths, cold baths, all these kinds of things to keep the temperature down. I think there's also a related fear of febrile seizures where um, children can uh, have seizures, a small subset of children can have seizures in the context of illness um, with fever. And I think there's with that a fear that the spike of the fever is going to lead to a seizure. But we know that that's not exactly the pathophysiology of what's going on, that there are some kids who may be prone to febrile seizures and that the, infl the inflammation of the underlying illness is more likely what's leading to cause them to seize. So even if you keep the fever down, they may have a seizure. 
Um, so anyways, in reality, fevers are a physiologic response to illness. We spend a lot of time reassuring families about that. They can actually be helpful in fighting the infection. And so there's no hard and fast rule as to when antipyretics need to be used. We just advise using them if the child's really uncomfortable from their fever or if they're listless and refusing mm -hmm. to drink, then that would certainly be a reason to give them antipyretics. But if you have a toddler who's 103 degrees and running around causing havoc like mine does, you really don't need to give them Tylenol. Okay. So you, you don't give your kids Tylenol if they're, if they're feeling okay? Not if they're feeling okay. And honestly, sometimes it's such a fight to get them to take the medicine. It, it just doesn't seem worth it unless I need it because they're really uncomfortable or they just won't drink. Hmm. Yeah. I, I remember reading a couple articles about fever where one of the hypotheses is that it helps the person eliminate the pathogen faster. Yes. I've seen some of those as well. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, okay. So... Excellent. So you ready for case two? I am. Okay. This one's a little more complicated, I guess. But this is a patient I saw on my pediatrics clerkship as well, third year of medical school. And she was an 11-year-old, previously very healthy girl who was up to date on all vaccines, who had a fever to 40 degrees centigrade the day her parents brought her to the emergency department. The reason they brought her in was they were concerned because uh, she had lost her appetite, had a small amount, I think she had several episodes of emesis, and seemed, quote-unquote, sort of out of it to them. Uh, no one had been sick at home, and there was no recent travel, and they did not own any pets, uh, including goldfish. Her history was otherwise unexciting, and it was repeatedly noted that the fever had come out of nowhere, according to the parents. So on physical exam, she was a slightly toxic, withdrawn-appearing girl, appearing stated age. Uh, her blood pressure was only 78 over 42. Her respiratory rate was 32. Pulse was 144 beats per minute. Her O2 saturation was 98% on room air, and her temperature at that time was 38.8 degrees centigrade. Her neck was supple, there was no lymphadenopathy, her eyes were without injection, mouth and throat uh, had no uh, exudate or erythema. Her tympanic membranes were slightly injected bilaterally, but uh, no effusion. Uh, cardiovascular exam revealed that she was tachycardic without appreciable murmurs or rubs. Uh, she was clear to auscultation on physical exam of her lungs. Uh, abdomen was uh, soft and non-tender. Balsons were present. There was no organomegaly. And uh, notably, her extremities exam, uh, there was no clubbing, cyanosis, or edema. But at the left great toe, there was an ingrown toenail with surrounding erythema and tenderness, as well as a small amount of expressible pus. She had not complained of this to her parents, by the way. Um, the erythema extended approximately to her midfoot over the dorsal surface of her foot. And the other remarkable finding on her skin exam was that she had diffuse erythroderma. So she was mm. bright red over her legs, arms, and trunk. So I guess that's kind of more complicated case than the first one, but what, what would be your problem representation for this patient at this juncture based on what I've described? At this point, I'd say this is a previously healthy, fully vaccinated 11-year-old with acute onset of fever, severe sepsis, and erythroderma found to have a mucopurulent soft tissue infection. And, you know, earlier when I mentioned sick or not sick, this kid is sick uh, in comparison, as you said, more complicated than the last. She's hypotensive. She's described by the examiner as toxic, and her parents say that she's out of it, which is worrisome. 
And then this all came on really quickly, which makes me concerned that it's rapidly progressive and I need to intervene. Okay, so how would you manage her at this juncture? Yeah, so first things first, she's hypotensive, as you mentioned, so I would bolus her for the hypotension. And of course, clinically, we're doing many things at once, um, but I would be focusing on that. Past that, I would want cultures, both of blood and also of the wound. You mentioned there's expressible pus, so I'd want to culture that and consider an IND. I'd want inflammatory markers, a CBC, a lactate, since she's hypotensive. Uh, I would consider getting a chest x-ray. She is tachypnic. However, I think that's probably more likely related to the fever and maybe even compensation if she's acidotic related to her hypotension. I, my suspicion for a primary pulmonary pathology is lower and impedes we really do think seriously prior to getting any radiating images. But in this case, she'd probably end up with a chest x-ray. Uh, and then I'd be giving her empiric antibiotics as soon as that blood culture is sent off. Okay, so you wouldn't be putting her in the CT scanner. If she was, if she was an adult, she might have. <laughs> she had might have it already got in. CBC there. was bad. Yeah, I, I probably would not at this juncture. Okay, plus I guess we wouldn't really know what to CT. Right. Anyway, okay, so her uh, white blood count returned at twenty-seven thousand with eighty-eight percent polymorphonuclear cells and 10% lymphocytes. Uh, her urinalysis was negative and a chest x-ray did not show any infiltrates. Um, so what do you think is going on here? What's your differential diagnosis in this girl? The differential in this girl is still somewhat broad at this point. We could probably do, as we mentioned earlier, a whole separate talk just on fever in the context of rash. Um, and although, as we've said, viral infections are still on the differential, in this case, the acute onset of severe sepsis and the, that pus, that pussy toe, the mucopurulent skin infection, really makes me think more about a bacterial infection. In this case, the sepsis physiology and that diffuse red rash that's being described does kind of make me think of group A strep, although the purulence puts staph a little higher on the differential. And if I'm thinking about staph, erythroderma in that context could be indicative of toxic shock syndrome, uh, which seems kind of surprisingly, you know, that it would mm -hmm. come up related to an ingrown toenail, but certainly stranger things have happened. And really, if you have any nidus infection with staph, you can develop staph toxic shock. So not just tampons. Not just tampons. Absolutely. Yeah. Certainly not. And I would say almost, I've only seen one case of toxic shock syndrome related to a tampon. The others I've seen have not been related, but mm. just related to other uh, nidus of infection. So for this kiddo, I'd be pushing hard if her hypotension didn't improve with fluids. Uh, I'd be really wanting to get her into the pediatric ICU because she might need some presser support. Okay, so the subsequent course was that she was cultured up and given IV fluid boluses, which barely bumped her blood pressure, which landed her in the ICU basically. Uh, she was given broad spectrum antibiotics, including staph and strep coverage, and admitted to the ICU. Um, she did require presser support, and I honestly can't remember what we used <laughs> back then, and I don't know if it would have uh, made any, I would have known about it anyway, even at that time. <laughs> so a surgery resident came in and sized and drained her uh, toe, uh, where she had that mucopurulent drainage. She remained hemodynamically tenuous overnight and didn't really stabilize for about 48 hours, mm. but fortunately finally did. And what she grew out of her blood was methicillin-sensitive staph aureus, um, and that was about eight hours after she came to the hospital, so pretty quickly. A diagnosis of toxic shock syndrome was made, and of note, a few days later her skin 
began to diffusely desquamate, mm-hmm. consistent with this diagnosis. Fortunately, she recovered. Her kidneys didn't take a hit or anything like that. Uh, and she went home on hospital day six, which I think was pretty fast for this <laughs> disease. And she was doing well at that time. Yeah, that's wonderful. Great that she made such a turnaround. And that's a really instructive case and one that clearly you don't forget. You still remember it from, from your clerkship. And maybe I should be going backwards and adding toxic shock syndrome to my can't-miss can't list. Miss. <laughs> yeah, I have to say I, I love that case because the big clue, of course, was a subtle thing on her physical exam. She had not complained of the toe. She had not told her parents about it, but it was found by careful inspection of her extremities, which I think a lot of times uh, can be missed. Yeah, I think Not that in can... peds, but in adult medicine. Yeah, absolutely. In peds, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we don't... Um, get as many radiologic studies. We also, in well-appearing kids, don't even get as many labs as I think are gotten in in adult patients. And so we really do focus heavily on our history and our physical exam to lead us. Excellent. So we've covered a lot of ground uh, here today. So uh, Alexis, what are your take-home points that you might have for our listeners about fever in children? Absolutely. For the first one, I would say fevers are super common in kids, and they're not necessarily dangerous in and of themselves. Um, And then secondly, really history, 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 and physical, physical, physical. Though That is where we focus our attention. You want to ask many questions regarding fever history to better understand the fever curve, the pattern, and to be able to categorize your patient's fever into one of those four categories that we mentioned. And finally, viruses are far and away the most common cause of fever in children, but there is a very broad differential that includes many can't-miss diagnoses. So a thorough history and physical is really necessary to distinguish amongst these cases. Excellent. And just for review at the end, is those four categories again for yeah. fever in kids? I would, fever in neonate, fever with localizing symptoms, fever without a source, fewer than seven days, and then fever of unknown origin, which is a week or longer. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Alexis. It's been really fun and educational for me, especially. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I sincerely hope that you learned a lot from today's podcast on fever in children. Coming into this podcast, you were listening to Fantasia 10, which is composed by Alonzo Madara and performed by Bay Area classical guitarist Lyle Scheffler. Coming out of this podcast, we're listening to Pasakele, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, but it's by George Friedrich Handel, arranged by David Russell, also performed by Lyle Scheffler from Lyle's album Classical Guitar, which you can find on iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your music. Check him out. He is quite the talent. Have a good day, everyone. <laughs>